Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science, and not just any episode of Lost in Science. Uh, it is our annual seasonal, I suppose, episode um, where we try to find science stories that are you know, kind of in some way connected to the holiday season that is upon us. Um, I speak, of course, of the Christmas kind of New Year period, the various other religious and um, non-religious holidays around the time, um, solstices, that sort of thing. Uh, and I don't know, don't get used to, but I think that in the years that we've been doing this show, we've pretty much covered basically every aspect of scientific aspect related to this. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't, I can't recall having done a story on the science of how bells jingle, but we've we've pretty much covered everything. Um, that I can think of, except a couple of things. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, I've... Yeah, yeah. I think we both found something, haven't we? Oh, uh, well, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that uh, that this period of the year brings to mind is eating. Uh, it is yeah. it is pretty much a festival of eating uh, where we eat all of the delicious things. And uh, I think you are looking at one of the the most traditional Christmas... Uh, icons, I guess, of the Christmas dinner table, Chris. That's right, yes. I um, I am looking at the science, would you believe it or not, of Christmas pudding. Uh, now, this is actually the first thing that popped into my head when I sort of think about, you know, the Christmas dinner table and what the science thereof. Um, because basically, you know, the puddings are these big kind of, they're kind of unique, sort of big, heavy... Um, creation that's cooked in a unique way and so i just got to thinking how does that work um why how are they so different to any other kind of baked goods that we eat so i thought i would look that up and try and explore the the physics and chemistry involved in christmas pudding um look it was either that honestly or do the science of cricket but you know maybe i'll save that one for next year i guess uh yes well i'm pretty sure we have done a story on the science of crickets and how they can yes, uh, related to the temperature, um, but yeah, I I sort of rode on your coattails, and well, I was thinking about my stomach and thinking about food, um, and it it is it is tangentially related to the plum pudding, but you know the the, the idea of um, cooking at Christmas and you know the big the big Christmas feast that people do cook up. The smells of what comes out of the kitchen when those meals are being prepared is what inspired me to talk about a very specific chemical reaction, which we'll all be immensely familiar with, but may not actually know the name of or or how it works. But it does pretty much make many, many things that we eat taste and smell a lot better than they would otherwise. You can you can name the reaction, Stu, because I'm going to name it in my in my. Well, okay, it is called the Maillard reaction, named after a French chemist who 
relatively recently, I mean, if you think of you know the early 20th century as recent, uh, but for something that we have been exploiting in our in our culinary pursuits for hundreds, probably thousands of years, to be honest, uh, it, it was really only named you know about a hundred years ago, or a little bit more than a hundred years ago, and wasn't actually characterised until uh, the 1950s. So I'll, I'll go into a little bit of the actual science of the Maillard reaction. Um, and you will right. be familiar with the flavours that I'm going to talk about, I'm sure. Look, even if I introduce some of that uh, in my Christmas pudding story, because I cannot talk about cooking anything at Christmas time without touching on the Maillard reaction. So we'll we'll go into it in great detail, I'm sure. Um, look, plenty of tasty things to get your mouth watering on this episode of Lost in Science. So um, yeah, on with the show. All right, so yes, you are listening to the Christmassy episode of Lost in Science, and I'm talking about Christmas pudding. Now, when I first kind of started looking up what I could find about Christmas pudding, one of the kind of suggested sort of results that I found was actually, and I'm talking about science, the plum pudding model of the atom, which is very physics, but it's maybe not what I'm talking about now. Are you familiar with this one, Stu? Yeah, this is a sort of pre-orbital model, isn't it, where we currently sort of represent the atom as as a nucleus with electrons flying around it in an orbit sort of like a solar system but the plum pudding model was kind of that they were all just lumped together and it was just a big lump and that was the atom yeah the idea was atoms were historically thought of those little hard spheres and then when it was realized that electrons came from atoms the model before was that the electrons were like kind of dried fruit in a plum pudding they're kind of <laughs> dotted in this sphere this pudding sphere of an atom and so that was kind of one of the models it was yeah, disproven by one of new zealand's greatest scientists uh ernest lord rutherford who fired particles at atoms and found that they're mostly empty space and realized that pretty much most of the mass is concentrated in a positively charged nucleus not a large pudding so, yeah, um, plum pudding model is not... I basically covered it briefly. That's all we really need to say about it, I guess. It's, it's a, defu- a defunct model. It is a defunct model. Yeah. But, yeah, the actual plum pudding, actual plum or Christmas pudding, it is, as everyone, most people know, it is a heavy uh, kind of spiced and fruity pudding, and it is cooked by boiling it in water for hours, essentially. Now, most things of a similar nature, like cake-like things, are baked in ovens at higher temperatures than boiling water. So they got me wondering, how does this work? Like, what's going on here? And I had some ideas, but I, you know, I kind of looked up more about the actual science of cooking. And it is quite a, it is a big topic. We've talked about it before in the show, we'll talk about it a lot more because there is a lot to talk about. But um, I'm going to cover some of the basics of physics and chemistry related to cooking and how they affect puddings in this case. But yes, first we'll talk about the chemistry and just go over some of the basic reactions involved in making something that is cake or pudding-like. Um, Stu, I believe you touched on one of those reactions. What was that? The, the Maillard reaction. And just briefly, what is that? Uh, I know you go into more detail, but briefly, what is the Maillard reaction? So it's, it's a reaction that um, many foods uh, undergo in cooking. So it requires a sugar or a carbohydrate, it requires an amino acid, and it requires an increased temperature. Yeah. 
And that's and what it gives you is it browns food and it gives it various kind of interesting flavors. Yeah, it basically alters the flavor of the food. Just you know, the yeah, the, yeah. the the process of cooking that we're all familiar with is effectively this reaction. Well, part of the process of cooking, because there are other reactions involved in baking a cake. Like, for instance, you mentioned the amino acids uh, that come from the proteins involved. And the proteins are a very essential part of making a cake. So for your basic kind of typical everyday cake, you know, you're going to have often um, wheat flour and eggs in it. And both of these provide protein. The eggs obviously have a lot of protein and um, wheat contains gluten or the ingredients for, for gluten. Uh, once you start mixing it up with water, you create gluten. But at you know higher temperatures, the gluten essentially hardens the, the proteins bond and give you the kind of the structure of your cake. What other action, reactions do you think there might be in a cake, Stu? Well, obviously you mentioned the, the denaturing of proteins, but... I would assume there'd be other reactions. How do the spaces get in the cake? So a cake is 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 full of bubbles. Effectively, it gets bigger because it fills up with with bubbles. Where are the bubbles coming from? Well, you talk about your rising or your leavening agents. It could be yeast or it could be baking soda. Basically, something that creates carbon dioxide and creates bubbles to make a cake light or bread. In the case of yeast, it could be light and airy. The yeast obviously is a living organism, produces carbon dioxide. Baking soda, through its chemical reactions with generally acidic substances, will give you uh, carbon dioxide as well. Look, let's not focus on that too much, though, because I've looked up quite a few pudding recipes and not many of them contain these rising agents, which is why, you know, your Christmas pudding is so dense. So we'll put that one aside. And and the, but the other thing is, so with, with cake, you're putting, as you said, you're putting a cake in the oven at a higher temperature for a much shorter period of time. What's the purpose of boiling the pudding? And and why why is that why is that the the recipe? Well we'll get to that. I have some ideas. Um there is um one other reaction though we should touch on while we're going through the reactions and that is caramelization. Ah. Which um happens to the sugars obviously, particularly in a cake and similar to the Maillard reactions happens at a higher temperature um but also gives you kind of a browning and its own kind of unique flavors uh, that we'd be familiar with for caramelization yeah so those are the main reactions we need to get those out before we go into how the actual pudding works now when we talk about the reason why you might boil it you need to consider you know comparing to to an oven thing is one of the hidden secrets of cooking which is that the food is not at the temperature that you're cooking it at it's not the temperature no because some of these reactions like your, your Maillard reactions to caramelization often happen on the surface of the foods, like you, for instance, browning meat, you get this nice browning on the outside. But a lot of the, the actual cooking is inside the substance and it is different reactions. It's often involving the proteins that we talked about, changes of those proteins. So you often, when you're getting a food is cooked, it's what the interior temperature is at, not what the exterior temperature is at. So for argument's sake, we're talking about you know, cooking meats, for instance. Apologies to any vegetarians and vegans out there. But like chicken, chicken breast, you're cooking chicken breast, um, it is cooked when it is at a temperature of about 70 degrees on the interior. But turkey, very um, Christmas time thing, about 74 degrees, I think, is the official advice for food safety. So the, the temperature of the oven is obviously a lot higher than that. Exactly, and, yeah. And so the food is still cooking, even though it's not at the same temperature as what the ambient temperature is. So so is that just a food safety measure of, of 
of being cooked in, you know, I'm doing quote marks there. Well, I guess it's depending on how you're wanting to cook it and what kind of results you're wanting to get. So generally making a cake or you're cooking, say, a roast, you want these Maillard reactions that you're going to be talking about and they will generally happen at higher temperatures. So you want them to happen while you are heating up the food the whole way through. I mean, you could just boil it in water. You can boil, say, a chunk of meat in water, but it won't be generally as tasty. Um, depending on the recipe, there are different recipes in there, I should say, but most people are going for that kind of nice Maillard taste on the outside. If I think of one, uh, you know, one type of meat which is boiled, which I'm thinking of corned beef, which is has a massively increased amount of salt in it, possibly to make up for the fact that the outside isn't isn't crunchy and, and Maillard reactioned. Well, and that's going to be part of the thing we'll get to. You kind of have to have some compensation for this. But yeah, so um, that's an important thing to remember. So when you're looking, for instance, a cake in the oven, certainly it is browning on the outside, but the inside of the cake does not brown to the extent. The inside of the cake is not at the same temperature that you put it in the oven. Now, for instance, we're talking about the proteins that are going to give the cake its structure. It's basically, you don't want the cake to dry out too much. So when the proteins are done, the job is when you consider that it is cooked. Um, so eggs, egg proteins harden at around 73 degrees Celsius. I couldn't find a really solid answer for gluten, but plain bread, um, which is basically yeast and flour, that is normally considered done when the interior is at about 88 degrees Celsius. So a bit higher than the eggs but still nowhere near even the boiling temperature of water. So yeah, boiling, it is sufficient to cook it, and it probably will work better when you've got a large, dense pudding, like a Christmas pudding, to actually be able to heat it all the way through. You know, if you tried that in an oven, by the time you were cooked in the middle, you'd really have burnt the outside of this pudding. Like the opposite, essentially, would be something like a pancake or a crepe, where you have a really thin cake, and it cooks in a matter of minutes, really. Or a crepe is like a few seconds, essentially, because it's still a cake batter, but it's so thin that it cooks very quickly. And so you don't get too burnt on the outside. You can still cook the cake all the way through. So the pudding is the opposite of a pancake, is what I'm saying. But that still gives you a problem with some of these other tasty reactions like your, uh, your Maillard and your caramelization, which generally require higher temperatures. Now, I did find that there are some loopholes for this. Maillard reactions can happen at lower temperatures. Under alkaline conditions, for instance, um, that's what gives balsamic vinegar its wonderful dark color, which happens over a period of time. doesn't apply here because it doesn't seem to be alkaline ingredients in that Christmas pudding that I can find. It can also happen over a very long cooking time. So essentially... Maillard reactions will happen faster at the higher temperatures, but they can still happen at, at the lower temperatures over a longer period of time. And this could explain the really long cooking time, which is like six to eight hours for a pudding, and helps to have them browned all the way through, which is something you don't get with a normal cake. Of course, the other reason, though, that they're browned all the way through is because of some of the ingredients, which include things like brown sugar or sometimes treacle. But the yeah, end pudding is usually darker than the batter that goes into it. However, you're going with a fairly dark pudding going in and it helps give it some of that brown colour and some of the flavours as well because often things like brown sugar, which contain molasses, have some complex flavours. And some of these flavours are also similar to your caramel flavours. So essentially you're cheating some of these tasty reactions by adding the right ingredients that already have that flavour. So you're not going to get caramelization of your sugars in your pudding at the temperatures that you're boiling it at. However, you're essentially adding those flavours already 
in the ingredients. Um, you might pour brandy over it, perhaps, when you're serving it and give it a bit of like you know, caramel on the outside. I can't speak to that necessarily. But it is something that's really interesting. I looked up some other kind of famous boiled puddings or steamed puddings. Like I know that we used to have um, steamed puddings at home and they were generally made with golden syrup. And a lot of those things cooked in that way have some sort of syrup or molasses or that kind of thing. So you're essentially giving it those brown or caramel flavors through the ingredients rather than through the cooking process so i think i'm pretty sure treacle and golden syrup and possibly molasses as well are somewhat caramelized versions of sugar to begin with so they've actually pre-caramelized them almost it's it is more complicated than that yeah yeah they're not really made by caramelizing and they have different chemical constituents to normal caramelizing but they have similar flavor profile right so it is a bit more complicated than that, it would seem, from the, the brief sort of chemical reading that I did in the research for this story. But I will look into that more. I found, yeah, a chemical breakdown of molasses, and it was quite different to the chemicals that you get in caramelization. But look, anyway, so there's my conclusion. Essentially, the boiling of the pudding is a good method for a large, dense pudding like this, a very celebrity pudding. I mean, you could not make a cake that large and dense. Generally, we try to make a large cake, you do it in thinner layers. So yeah, it's a good method for this large, dense pudding. Um, but to get the tasty chemical reactions, you do need some workarounds through the ingredients, it seems, and through the longer cooking time. So yeah, just something to think about while you're enjoying your Christmas pudding. Maybe um, now you know something about it, maybe you can think of ways to tweak the recipe. I imagine you could cook small puddings in an oven and you might get a nice tasty crust on the outside. But no, something to experiment with and um, maybe... Send us in your results of your experiments. Transmitter of that sort isn't exactly standard equipment. The science and technology must be absolutely mind-boggling. Of course, that's uh, mostly on the theoretical side. What so far? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. One of the funny things about celebrating Christmas in Australia, I think, is how much tradition we have relocated from a completely different part of the world, which doesn't suit most of us who live in Australia. And, you know, the idea of snow and wintry weather goes hand in hand with Christmas, but this doesn't suit very many places in Australia, although anyone listening from Melbourne might disagree with that assertion uh, after the so-called summer they've had so far Uh, but among the european traditions we've hung on to despite their climatic unsuitability is the food of christmas the hams and as chris said the puddings you know the mince pies the roasted birds and veggies Uh, and a lot of the traditional veggies and foods don't really fit either much of the old-fashioned christmas fare is to use up things that won't make it through the winter um, or things that preserve well, or indeed things that are in season in uh, in winter, such as Brussels sprouts and leeks and things like that. Dried fruits and ham are foods that keep well, and so in a midwinter feast, there's something to look forward to, not so much in the height of summer here in Australia, where peaches and cherries and mangoes are just coming into season, which is something to look forward to uh, in its own. But despite the reality that it could easily get to you know, the 40s on Christmas Day in many parts of the country, for many people it wouldn't be Christmas without the smell of roasting goodness coming from the kitchen as the day wears on. And many of these foods have something in common that makes them smell so tempting, as we mentioned earlier. A process that occurs which transforms raw materials into aromatic feasts for the senses. But 
that process, we've known about that for centuries. Everyone knows that the smell of food cooking is a pleasant smell, but it wasn't actually named until the early 20th century. So in 1912, a French chemist called Louis-Camille Maillard published a paper, and I'm going to butcher this French here, Action des acides amines sur les sucres, formation de melanoidines par voie méthodique which translates as action of amino acids on sugars, formation of melanoidins in a methodical way. Basically, he wrote down his procedure for making the Maillard reaction, which is what we were talking about in the pudding story. He wasn't actually trying to figure out things about cooking. He was trying to synthesize proteins. So he was actually a biochemist who was interested in medicine, and he was trying to figure out ways of synthesizing proteins in the lab to figure out how various illnesses and things like that worked, but came across this process as a byproduct of his research. So this was the first description of the chemical reaction we all know about from cooking. It wasn't until the 50s that the mechanism of the chemical reaction was first described by an American chemist working for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And since then, it has been tweaked and adapted in food science to produce improved flavors and entirely new flavors, including some artificial flavors. So a lot of those post-1950s artificial flavors, which most people will be somewhat familiar with, were developed as a better understanding of these chemical processes from cooking. Now, as I said in my story, it is kind of this browning reaction that happens, you know, almost in the outside of foods and things. What I realized I didn't talk about there is, I said it's done at high temperatures, but what kind of temperatures does it normally take place at or is it normally associated with? Well, so as far as food, you start getting Maillard reactions at about 140 degrees Celsius. And that's where the interaction of sugars and amino acids at these temperatures becomes more common. So the, 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 right. more, the more you increase the temperature, the faster and more reactions you get. So this is like when they, I said, like, you know, you don't get it, for instance, you know, in boiling water, obviously. So this is why when you're making, say, a stew, you brown the meat by frying it beforehand at a higher temperature and then you put it, the liquid in. So it, it cooks through at, you know, the boiling temperature water, but you've got the nice brown crust on the outside. Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, and then those flavors sort of get distributed by boiling it further. I mean, you know, it's ne- nearly every slow cooker recipe involves producing the Maillard reaction and then putting them in a slow cooker for you know, six, eight hours to get those flavors to yeah. really spread out. But uh, I, w- I was reading about the Maillard reaction and it can occur at much lower temperatures. For example, in mummies that they've dug out of peat bogs have undergone the Maillard reaction in the peat bog. Oh, wow. But the acidity of the peat bogs has slowed down the reaction a lot. So it happens at very low temperatures but over a very long period of time. Hundreds or thousands of years. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So this is why the skin of these mummies is browned and often their hair goes red as a result of the Maillard reaction. The same chemical process is happening, but it's happening over a much longer period of time, which is a bit of a morbid side note on the, on the cooking session. But, you know, it is interesting that it can happen in different 
uh, situations. And, and interestingly, the, the pH, the acidity or alkalinity, can have a huge effect. So because of the chemical nature of the reaction, many bakers knew they could exploit this chemical reaction. They could get browner baked goods by dipping uncooked dough in lye, which is an alkaline substance. And that results in a completely different flavor profile of the cooked loaf. Probably the best example of that um, that you may have tasted is the pretzel. So the the bready kind of pretzels that that are common in in Germany and other parts of Northern Europe uh, have that very, very dark outer crust, which is a result of this lye dip before they get cooked which enhances the Maillard reaction and you get a much different flavour on the actual finished loaf or finished bun, I suppose. I don't know how you describe a pretzel. It's kind of a twisted bun, I suppose. But not quite different from the, from the crunchy, you know, bar snack pretzels that you may have also had, which again are also improved in flavour by the Maillard reaction as well. So it's, it's, it's a common thing. But even, you know, as I said, even before we understood how the reaction worked or even named it bakers have been doing this for hundreds of years so people have already been exploiting their understanding of how the reaction works and improving the flavors of things interestingly the type of amino acids so you need amino acids and you need sugar to get the Maillard reaction to actually work amino acids being the um the building blocks of protein that's right so if you've only got sugars You can get caramelization, which you mentioned earlier, but you can't get Mm -hmm. a Maillard reaction. You need amino acids to be present, so you need some other substance. So interestingly, you know, if you put potatoes in a high enough temperature, you will caramelize the potatoes or or same with, you know, many other vegetables because they only have mainly starches. They don't have any of the proteins, but you do get amino acids in a lot of the cooking oils that we add. So you can get Maillard reactions from adding oil to your vegetables, which is why you get French fries, which are, you know, produced by the Maillard reaction. That's why they smell so delicious. Um, oh, really? As compared to boiled potatoes, for example. Oh, that is very interesting. Yeah. So the, the type of the amino acid changes the flavor of the action product. Food science is, is you know, probably... correct me if I'm wrong, food scientists, but about 50% working how to manipulate the Maillard reaction to make things taste different. But there's specific amino acids that result in specific flavors if you put them together with the right sugars, obviously. For example, the amino acid furanone results in a sweet caramel flavor, while the amino acid thiophene results in a roasty, meaty flavor. So they they can actually predict how these flavors are going to work out, and you can put different proportions of different amino acids with different sugars to get different flavors and this is as i said before how you can get some of those artificial flavors you don't have to have an actual bacon ingredient you can make a flavoring that tastes like bacon without having to have any bacon products involved at all so as i uh was listening to you talking about the plum pudding it's interesting to note that dried fruit is also a product of the Maillard reaction, which is why sultanas and raisins don't taste the same as grapes. Even when you rehydrate them in water, they've actually altered their flavor profile by a relatively slow version of the Maillard reaction uh, affecting the flavor of those fruits as well. Now, one thing I should mention, and this is something which has been brought up in recent years, is that if the Maillard reaction 
happens at high enough temperatures, it can produce a substance called acrylamide. And acrylamide has been linked to, well, it, it may cause cancer in humans, but there's not enough evidence to say for sure that it does. So one of the, one of the things that people are worried about is that foods cooked in this way to produce higher levels of Maillard reactions may be increasing the production of these acrylamides. So the idea that, oh, you can just turn the oven up and you'll get a better flavor, that's actually true, but it may also produce this substance acrylamide. So it's it's one of those, um, I would say scientifically, there's evidence that it's possible that acrylamide may cause cancer. We don't know for sure at this point. You can avoid it by keeping the temperatures relatively low and cooking for longer, which seems to avoid the production of acrylamides. Or you can add asparagine, which is another amino acid, which prevents the chemical process which which results in the acrylamide happening. So there, there are things to consider, even though these delicious flavours are produced by this reaction. Don't try and rush through, try and... Uh, a longer, slower cook will result in a, in a happier, safer meal, I suppose, is the end. Um, look, whatever foods you might be enjoying over the Christmas period, take a moment to thank Louis Maillard for his work understanding what makes food more delicious, even though that was something of a mistake. But probably you should also go and lend a hand to whoever is in the kitchen uh, to thank them as well. And that's it for another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is recorded for 3CR in Melbourne on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And it airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We would love you to get in touch with us. You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook where Lost in Science on 3CR or on Twitter where we're at Lost in Science 1. You can find us on your favourite podcast app where if you get the chance, please give us a good rating and review as that will raise us up in the search rankings so other people can find the science. Or you can listen to us however you listen to us now where at the same time every week when we all get Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.